Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Dean Mays, the man without a voice. And we had a conversation in Cappy's Tea Shop in Adelaide about about his point of view on the hashtag MeToo movement as a man who has had really nasty experiences in a female-dominated industry. So I, th- I thought that was a really interesting angle to take on this on this now maybe probably over-talked topic uh, because there are various people who have very strong opinions about the movement and he has had a bad experience with it. So I thought it would be interesting to engage with him about that that experience. We talked about various other things as well, including his his role as a writer of romantic fiction, a, a male working class writer of what is again predominantly a female dominated industry. So uh, that is a really good chat. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Thank you, everyone who's emailed me or tweeted me or or sent me a message on the Patreon. Patreon.com/slash Alice Fraser is the place to do that if you want. Uh, requests are always welcome. I've had a few in and I will get on to writing some things in response because I really like, I really like doing that. I really like it when you request something and I can, I can give uh, a something that I wouldn't have thought of doing or give a more nuanced opinion um, on something that I hadn't thought through properly. I really enjoy that. And also everybody who has been subscribed at the like super high, um, Skype level I've had some great chats I was dubious about doing it as a reward level I was like oh no what what if everyone is awful but I shouldn't have even thought that because so far my interactions with you um, listeners have been just universally delightful and I do not underestimate how good that is I'm a member of a, um, a whatsapp group of of UK female comics even though I'm here in Australia <gasps> naughty um, but just the amount of crap people get i feel i feel hugely lucky to have you as listeners you are great and again thank you everyone who has been coming to the shows and telling me on their way out that they are a listener to the podcast it is a thrill for me i feel genuinely starstruck when i meet one of you so uh thank you for that i'll i'll stop i'll stop i'll let you get on with listening to this conversation i think it's a really interesting conversation uh look up dean mays online he is uh, a really interesting person to follow we always have an interesting conversation and that's the point of this show is having having interesting and difficult conversations over tea and uh i i think it's a i think it's a niche it's a niche in the market right so thank you for listening i will talk to you next week you're having tea with alice Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. So, who are you and what are you drinking? My name's Dean, and I'm drinking a lovely green tea. Yes. We're in Adelaide. It's, uh, we're in Adelaide in a tea warehouse shop called Cappy's, which has the benefit of not playing any music in it, which is what I look for in a cafe. Absolutely. Good tea and no music. <laughs> Way to start. Yeah. What are you, what are you drinking at the moment? So, yeah, this is a green tea. Now, you ordered this tea, so I have to defer to you your choice of... Now, what was it? It's a gyokuro, which is like a relatively um, unprocessed green tea. So, that's why it's so very green. Fantastic. Yeah, it looks really it good. It like the, per- the first picking of the leaves. Yep. Okay. Um, so, the, the very pointy end of the tender shoots... Um, 
it sounds really nice when it pours. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a nice tea shop. Yeah, this is a, um, a favourite of mine, actually. We, uh, my wife and I have been coming here for a, a, a several years. Yeah, we, and I mean, I think it's been in Adelaide for upwards of 20, 25 years. So, um, and it's just been tucked away in this little corner of Adelaide and no one's really sort of, you know, it's never really made its presence known, but everyone knows about it. So, you know. I like that. Yeah, I like yeah. that. I was listening before I got here a little earlier before you were here and, you know, they were explaining downstairs all the different kinds of teas. They were explaining mm. to a group of young ladies and I thought, that's what you want. You want someone who knows their stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's no, um, it's so pure. There's no artificial anything in the, any of these teas. It's just, this is it, you know. Well, these so. women were recovering from a hen's night and he had like specific recommendations for yep. uh, what it would be, what would be best for them to have, um, which I thought was lovely. So what have you been wrestling with of late? Oh, everything, Alice. Everything. Everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was listening to Joe Rogan and Dan Carlin just this morning before I came in here and um, and they were talking about sort of getting into the stage of life that they're at now and just being totally overwhelmed with... with the discourse and and the world, the world's sort of attitude to discourse and um, and and thought and and you know free thinking and you know compelled thinking and and like I'm 44 mm-hmm. right and I know less about the world now than I ever thought I did you know what up until then I mean what do you mean by that like what do you know less about than you thought you did um like. I just I just feel so much less sure about um, certain concepts and you know and um, you know ideas around you know politics and things like that and and just when I think that I've got my sort of head around it um, I just get completely sort of sideswiped by you know um, the reality of so many vari- varying opinions you know so um, yeah drill down more okay. just give me specifics Dean. Specifics. Um, like, I'm sort of starting to see the really another side to things like the Me Too movement, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I mean, I'd, I'd sort of broached this with you a couple of weeks ago in an email where, um, like, I, I've, I try, I've tried to get involved in the discussion around. Um, Assault and um, you know, and the and the conversation around me too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I figure that I figure that I can bring something to the table in terms of what I do as a nurse. Um, yeah. But what I'm finding with with the movement is that it's very exclusive, um, and and I'm finding that from a lot of quarters, my voice is just not welcome there. So you know. Um, and so it's it's frustrating to me because um, I, I can't I can't sort of offer anything um, if that's going to be shot down all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand what you mean. Mm. I think there are sort of there's multiple angles on that. Mm. One is from a purely feminist perspective. Um, 
you know, if this is considered to be a women's movement, mm. then the idea that you need to offer something it, it is sort of presumptuous that you are, you know, you're a man. Yeah. This is a women's movement. This is against, for the most part, men. But is it a women's movement? But the question is whether it is a women's movement mm. or is it a movement against the misuse of power? And if it is, if this, if the abuses that have been perpetuated traditionally by men are not something that comes purely out of masculinity or toxic masculinity or testosterone or whatever it happens to be, mm. if it's something, something more human than that, less masculine and more just about how people misbehave when they have power, absolutely, yeah. then it's yeah. a different movement, mm. and it's less simple. Mm. Because the solution isn't just give women more power. Mm. It's examine the ways in which we treat power as giving you entitlement over other people yeah. Yeah. and so on and so forth. There's, I got a really interesting email this morning from a listener who wanted to be anonymous. And so I won't, I won't be incredibly detailed in what he said, but he's a, an older man mm. And he has uh, he sort of tried to chip in about consent. He has never been in a relationship with a woman. Mm. He's always taken no for an answer, but he's consistently treated as a creepy dude. Mm. Without meaning to be creepy, he's made women uncomfortable, they've blocked him on Twitter, so on and so forth, various mm. things like that which indicate to him that his even platonic attentions or, you know, his crush or whatever it happens to be, his fandom mm. of them, his support of them is not welcome mm. to them. Mm. And that's a really hard position for mm. him to be in because he's not a and he's a well meaning dude. He likes these women. He likes them uh, as much as he should and maybe more. Mm. He's never pressed his attentions on anyone, but he he is being treated like a threat. Mm. Mm. From their perspective, totally reasonable. You know, men who come up and see your shows many times in a row are often a threat. Every woman has been in a situation where <laughs> they felt deeply uncomfortable. Yep. And it's it's a lot to ask of someone when they feel deeply uncomfortable to mm. err on the side of giving a guy a chance rather than erring on the side of protecting yourself. In the conversation or just more generally in, in the interaction? In the interaction. Yeah, yeah, if yeah, somebody's... Yeah putting up, you know, yellow flags, mm. you're more likely to round those up to red flags mm. than you are to round them down because, you know, everyone has been in that situation where they've given someone a chance or dismissed their own feelings or, yep. Yep. you know, sort of thought, oh, well, you know, I don't want to hurt his feelings and ended up in a really uncomfortable situation. Yeah, yeah, sure. So... so it's an interesting one when sort of bringing it back to the Me Too movement. Mm. If you're trying to chip in and complicate the conversation, it can be seen as undermining the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. See, and this is where I guess the confusion for me initially, uh, let's see, where I was confused about it because I never thought that the Me Too movement, I, never, I understood the Me Too movement being about everyone, mm -hmm. not just women. And so when I began to, you know, put my toe in the water of this discourse around me too, well, I brought certain experiences of my own to the table. Um, but they were, uh, 
the, the, the response to them was just bizarre in that, you know, um, I was minimised, um, kind of ignored. Um, oh, not ignored. Um, it was definitely a response to them, but... Um, it just seems it was a negative response it was a negative response and so i guess i have to give some context here so about 20 years ago right i was a, i was a junior rn so um fresh out of uh, my training and i RN is a nurse registered a nurse. registered nurse sorry yeah yeah um and so i i went into a, a workplace and i encountered a, a sustained um, a sustained period of bullying and harassment from um, several female colleagues over you know a long period of time, talking about eighteen months, right? And at one point during that period, um, I experienced what I could only be described as um, sexual assault. Um, so th- this was sexual assault perpetrated by the women against me. Mm. Right. Now, at the time that that happened, um, I had an opportunity to um, put that case forward to my superiors um, and was told in no uncertain terms that this will be going nowhere, um, that you know this could not possibly happen um, and if you persist with this, then you can forget about having a career, you know. Yeah, so it seems pretty textbook hashtag me too. Yeah. As it were, like it seems like an institutional issue as well as a personal yeah. issue. Yeah. And so, hang on, just gonna have a cup of tea. Huh? This is gorgeous tea, by the way. It's a um, good tea place. Yeah. Um, and so I, I experienced everything that a victim of sexual assault could experience, I think, you know, um, and, you know, the, 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 the negative thoughts and, you know, I felt g- guilt-ridden and just unworthy and, you know, it, it did lead me down a dark place. Mm. Um, and I didn't talk about it for years. Um, and so when, when the conversation started, I guess, last year and I saw that a lot of people were, were sharing their own um, experiences. Well, I sort of did the calculus and sort of decided that well, maybe it's time for me to speak up, you know. Um, and so yeah, so there there are places where I did that, um, but they're, they're just the response was just you know vicious, you know, to the point of yeah. Yeah, I think this is one of the. I mean, intersectionality is a big buzzword at the moment, particularly in feminism. The mm. idea that your your activism needs to include um, other people than yourself. Mm. It, it can't just be about you as a white woman and white women like you in the situation that you're in. Yeah, sure. It has to also be about women of colour and people who are of, of sort of on the non-binary binary, binary spectrum or, mm. you know, trans women and so on and so forth. And one of the blind spots seems to be class and particularly men of the working class Mm. which I would say as a young nurse you would count Mm. quite quite solidly as one of those (laughs) yeah 
it's 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 an odd one because it's an easy target as well working class men mm. working class men tend to be the ones who will shout at you on the street mm. who will it's hard to feel like they're part of your gang mm. Mm. if you're a you know young middle class white woman and somebody's following you home you know from a construction site or whatever it happens to be it's hard to go well this person's also suffering from structural inequalities and bigotries and prejudices and it's hard to get your head around that mm. if you mm. see someone as a threat to see them as also on your side mm. Mm. but it's it's a real problem yeah um and i'm trying to find solutions to that problem and um in terms of you know widening the conversation to include people that don't sort of fit the the majority you know um and i'm having a lot of trouble finding it you know yeah i think i think part of the narrative of change that's happening at the moment is that there's been this inequality that's weighted against women for mm. so long mm. in situations where, you know, a working class man is at a disadvantage, his wife is at more of a disadvantage. Mm. Mm. That's the kind of assumption. But I think the problem is that the the, the context doesn't shift your idea of the world. Mm. So there are contexts where your structural oppression as mm. a woman yep. doesn't apply. Yep. Or it does apply, but there are other oppressions that are taking place. If you genuinely believe that, for example, in a female-dominated women's studies class at a university, a male working-class man who tries to have an opinion in that space is not suffering at least some form of inequality mm. in which he's on the lower end of that particular power spectrum, yep. then you're kidding yourself. Yeah. You're fooling yourself. Yeah. And I think that that blind spot in the movement is leading or, or giving space to this backlash, mm. the backlash of the men's rights activists, the backlash of Jordan Peterson fans. I mean, Jordan Peterson's stuff is incredibly appealing because he he wants people to speak carefully. He wants people to, you know, be uh, limited in what they say, careful in what they say. Mm precise in what they say he then sort of undermines it by making grand sweeping statements about things like marxism or <laughs> you know he, he'll sort of he's very precise about the nuances in his side of the argument yeah. and then he'll just be like you know liberal elite or you know he'll sort of wave do these hand waving things that elide yeah. the complexities on the other side and i'm trying to read him at the moment i'm finding it really hard so you know what um, are you finding hard oh, about it? Oh, just just that very thing. Like that, you know, he he seems to make these very straightforward um, statements about you know being better and doing this and you know you know standing up straight with your shoulders back sort of thing. Um, and then he'll just d just disappear down this rabbit hole of like um, you know m mythos and um, um, and you know like biblical reference and, and stuff like that and um, I, I just I find myself struggling to keep up with him so you know yeah so I think it's best like I mean I find him appealing but I also I don't sort of I can get about halfway with him and then the other half I, I'm just kind of like oh, I'm See, not sure I about think, you I think that's such a like I think that's such a good place to be with anybody yeah like yeah. I think you don't 
I think you can say, I like these things that he says, mm. without saying, I like everything that he says, and without saying, I endorse everything that he does. We don't seem, you know, it's that, um, I can't, I've spoken about it before and I can't remember the name, but there was a guy who wrote about uh, ho- holding your ideas loosely. Yep. Holding your identities loosely. Yep. Yep. So that you can examine them and re examine them and move around mm. in them. Mm. So that you don't need to be on a side. You don't need to be flag waving. Sure. And the counter argument to that, of course, is that then you won't necessarily get anything done. If you don't have activists and people who are um, manically invested in a cause, society doesn't change. Yeah, but. Does it, but because because there's so many activists out there at the moment, and and because they're so driven by a a, a particular issue, it, isn't that sort of the same thing? Because we're butting up against each other. You know, this activist over here is is arguing vehemently about this, and then you've got this activist over here who's doing the same thing. Yeah, we're not that interested in finding common ground. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is. Mm. We're at a very interesting time. Sarah Pascoe at this um, Clear Lines Festival. Mm. So I did a show in in London with a number of other women. We were the stand-up show at the end of a two-day conference about consent. Yes, which I found fun and interesting to do. Um, I don't know if there was anybody who was going to that who wasn't already on board with most of the arguments that were being mm, made mm. but it is good and Winnie Emily spoke about how good it is to have a community of people who've shared your experience yep. um, but sort of two things really came out of that for me first Sarah Pascoe talked about male victims of domestic violence mm. which is a big calling catch card cry for the men's rights activist movement mm. they don't get taken seriously uh, male victims of domestic violence are dismissed by the police yep. and they don't get services in the same way that female victims of domestic violence do. That's right, yeah. But one of the reasons that they don't get services, things like uh, there aren't very many shelters for men, male mm. victims of domestic violence, there just aren't. No. Partly because male victims of domestic violence don't use those services. Mm. They don't ask for those services because mostly they tend to own their own space. So they don't need to move out. That's not the need that they have when they are suffering from domestic violence for the most part or in enough numbers to justify making a shelter. Mm. But then they can't say what they do need either because they're, you know, incapable of articulating it or because there's no clear thing that will help. Yeah. You know, it's not like, well, I just need a bed for the night and a safe place to have my children. Mm, mm. That isn't usually, and I'm sure it is in some cases, but for the most vast majority of cases, that's not what they need. That's right, yeah. Yep. But they can't say what they do need. Mm. And that's really hard. Mm. And that's because I think, um, you know, the traditional backgrounds that they've come from and the traditional thinking that they've come from in that, um, you know, you can't speak... Men can't speak up about this sort of thing because they'll be ridiculed. Like, I mean, my experience, I didn't speak up for it for 20 years because I was ashamed and embarrassed by it, you know. Um, What was so shameful about it for you? What was embarrassing about it? What did you feel that you should have done? um, Would have... uh, Well, because... 
I was, I mean, first of all, I was completely floored that that somebody could actually um, perpetrate this sort of act against 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 me. But uh, floored also because that when I, you know, tried to follow the process that you have to follow in in reporting these things, you know. Um, I was just completely, you know, torn to shreds. You know, mm. this couldn't possibly have happened to you, you know. Um, you know, and to the point where I was actually threatened that, you you know, you will not take this further because we will make it very hard for you, you know. So, and this is, this is mid to late 90s here in South Australia, you know. Um, so it's not that far it's not that long ago. Uh, no. But having said that, you know, I was also probably influenced by the fact that I grew up in a, you know, country Victoria um, where, you know, there's the old thing that men were men and they didn't talk about their feelings and they didn't, you know. Um, it's fucking pulled your socks up and got on with it, mate. Yeah, exactly. That kind um, of thing. So, um, and I guess this is... Perhaps one positive, positive thing about the um, it, the movement in that um, I, it's allowed certain men to be able to, to step forward. Like I read a, you know, probably one of the most ground shaking articles I read was about the act of Brendan Fraser. Now Brendan Fraser um, was was interviewed for GQ magazine um, in the last month or so, um, and he recounted an experience of, you know sexual assault per- yeah. perpetrated against him um, and he struggled with that for you know 15 years and it's one of the reasons why he sort of disappeared from Hollywood for a long time you know mm. he couldn't get work and um, he dealt with shame and you know ruined his marriage and um, and that that had a bit of an effect on me you know um, in that I was sort of seeing my own experience through his his experience. Yeah, um, which I think is where the Me Too movement is doing its best work. Yeah, yeah. It's making, it's, it's making people who have up until now felt alone mm. see their own experiences reflected in other people and then as a result of that realising how common it is yeah. and people who didn't believe this stuff happened or, you know just had that general assumption of, oh, well, you should be able to deal with that. You should be able to just walk out of the room or, yeah, yeah. you know, tell the guy to get his fucking hands off you or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, it's sort of more and more people are realising that it isn't ever as simple as that. Mm. I think one of the things that is sort of not being said explicitly but is coming out more and more obviously is that Often in the moment when something like that happens, it doesn't feel like such a big deal. Mm. So when it's happening to you, it's not massive. It's only after it's happened that it sort of hits you. So in the moment, you will be inclined to sort of brush it off or laugh it off or Mm. react Mm. in a way that implies that it's not such a big deal. Mm. And then it's only afterwards that it sort of sinks in and starts eating away at you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a toxic mist sprayed into the air 
someone sprays it into your face and you sort of are a bit startled. Yeah, sure. You're like, oi, what are you doing? Mm. And then it's only later that your sort of lungs start to corrode or whatever it happens to be. It's not a blow to the face. No. Which is the kind of violence we understand. It's yep. a it's a corrosion. Mm. And so it's hard in the moment to address it, which means that, you know, afterwards you'll be accused of exaggerating it mm. or... Mm. Or, well, if it was such a big deal, then, you know, if you've got PTSD and you're suffering and you can't get a job or you can't hold a relationship together, why didn't you say something at the time mm. if it was such a big deal? Um, so, and then there's also the third part of that, which is that when somebody's doing it, the amount of damage it will do is unquantifiable. Mm. You don't know, you know, I've been in situations, I'm, I'm a lady comedian. People push the line around me all of the time. Mm. There's plenty of situations where a friend has crossed the line and I've been like, oi, and they've backed off and it hasn't stuck with yeah, me. Yeah, sure. And there's other situations where things that are objectively smaller than that, done by somebody who I don't know or I don't trust or I don't have context for, mm. will stay with me for ages. Yep, yep. So it's, it's a really difficult one to address mm. and to punish and to deal with in the moment mm. yeah um and so i guess going back to what i said at the beginning you know um uh, trying to find a way through this these conversations at the moment outside of the conversation that you and i are having right now but um it, it's just really difficult um you know uh and so that's that's I don't want to denigrate the movement um, so much because I think that what it does is valuable. Mm. Um, but if you're going to have a movement that you advertise as being for all, or that's that's where where I came into it for. You know, sorry, that is the understanding I had when I came, when I was first presented with it. Yeah. Um, but then... Well, understandably, if only because things like uh, the Kevin Spacey incident was such a central part of getting that new movement rolling. The, the, the Me Too movement has sort of existed in mm. prior forms as a woman of colour who started it years and years and years and years ago. Yeah, yeah. But this kind of new resurgence, this new Me Too movement, um, yeah, it was sparked by these big Hollywood stories, mm, mm. including very centrally Kevin Spacey, you know, pressing himself on this 14-year-old boy. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not, from your perspective, it's not just about women. no. No, never. And the fact that it's sort of become... That there are women who felt comfortable telling you that it was not for you... Yep. ...is disturbing. Mm. Because it means there's some there's other agendas at play... Yep. ...than just talking about the misuse of power. Yep. Maybe, if, maybe it is the misuse of power by men. Maybe that's the assumption, because Kevin Spacey is a man as well. But yep. by men against women... I don't know. And mm. why, why does it need to exclude the misbehaviour of women? Other than, I guess, that there are people of bad faith who constantly come into conversations like this. You know, the, the classic one is the trans woman talking about their experiences of, you know, feeling 
body dysmorphia or what have you and some bad faith actor coming in and saying, well, I feel like a teapot and you have to address me as a teapot. And, you know, that's, you know, that's clearly them just trying to destabilise the narrative. Mm. Mm. Um, You know, what, what they're... I think what they're actually saying or what they what their underlying misunderstanding is is well how how is gender different from other things mm. other elements of identity and that's a conversation that's worth having but they're not having it in good faith no. so it, it, it but what about or is always a dangerous thing to bring in, particularly on social media. Oh, Because absolutely. it always sounds like you're being an asshole. Yeah. Even when you're being, you know, true and yeah. honest and, and bringing up a, a relevant point. It just I, makes you sound like a dick. I got into the uh, into this exchange over the weekend um, about a similar... It was around... Uh, it was around the Me Too thing, um, but it was a peripheral discussion, I think. Um, and I'd sort of put forward some observations of my own about um, certain things and then I just got totally bombarded with these like 30 plus streams of tweets from uh, a handful of people and I just couldn't I couldn't cope I just kind of um, short circuited and, and I just typed in I just I said something like you know what don't listen to me I'm wrong I, I don't know what I'm talking about you know um, perhaps you should go over here like to this person who seems like a really good person, you know. Um, Did that work? Yeah, they disappeared. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's just... Uh, part of getting into these conversations I was, is about me because I don't, I don't feel very... like I feel like I suffer from imposter syndrome mm-hmm. in that, you know, like... I, I feel like I don't know, like I said before, I feel like I know less about the world now than what I ever did, mm. you know. And so I'm trying to uh, trying to extend myself, trying to read more widely, you know. So, um, and I think I'm just getting it wrong more than I'm getting it right at the moment, you know. Mm. Um, I think that's a good thing to do, though. I think we need more uncertain voices speaking yeah. publicly about their uncertainty. Yeah. Although, yeah. you know, from a certain perspective, uncertainty is itself a betrayal. Like there's some real nasty diatribes against um, so-called centrists at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Like, pick a side, mate. <laughs> no, I'm not going to pick a side. Yeah. I don't no. want to pick a side. Yeah. Like, as and when there are guns in the street, I'll pick a side. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'll pick a side when it is a matter of that kind of violence. Mm. You know, I thought I'd picked a side and then actually there were a lot of things happening on that side that made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So now I'm just, I'm just, my side is the side of interesting <sighs> conversations over tea. Yeah, yeah. And that's oh, really a like massively that. privileged side to be able oh, to take. Absolutely. But I'm I'm a privileged person. I live in a society where no one is at the moment holding a gun to my head and making me choose. Mm. And until they do that, I will not choose. Yep. Until something happens that, that makes it imperative for me to, you know, whatever it is, he's my husband, you can't, you know, he can hit me if he wants or, what, you know, that like until it pushes me into that level of... of I'm going to accept with all the flaws because we need to pick a side. Yeah. It's a war. Yeah. 
I refuse to believe it is a war mm. because it isn't, at least in my neighbourhood, a war yet. No. Which doesn't mean I won't fight for justice. Mm. Mm. But I don't have to put a fucking hat on to do it. No. No. And this is why people like you are so important because, I mean, I've often said to you that I've learned more about humanity and people through listening to your podcast for the last two and a bit years than I have from ever, you know, trying to digest the news, you know, um, because you allow for um, those voices and those ideas. And, you know, it's great to kick ideas around, I think. That's that's one thing I have learned and that I'm sure about. It's great to kick ideas around. Yeah, so, yeah. I agree. I think anybody... I I think anybody who tries to shut down a conversation puts up a yellow flag for me. Mm. And sometimes it's it's a bad faith conversation. It is somebody just trying to exhaust you. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can walk away from it. Mm. There's a difference between walking away from a conversation and shutting it down. Mm. You guys can have this conversation without me. Mm. I don't I don't need to do this particular work. Yep. You guys can figure it out or not. It's not my problem yeah but equally the shut up i don't like yeah so i'll i'll leave you guys continue is fine yeah but like shut up not so not so much yeah yeah um and i get that a lot <laughs> you get shut up a lot <laughs> I get shut up a lot um and it's like okay i'll, I'll stop now because i just yeah i think you're you You've come to a point of being absolute and I'm still not sure. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's a frustrating thing. It's a frustrating thing to want to have a conversation when someone doesn't. Mm. You can't force someone to have a conversation. No, no. It's an equally frustrating thing when somebody won't stop having a conversation with you and you're like, actually, I'm I'm fine with what I believe. I'm not going to change my mind. Mm. That's frustrating as well if they keep coming at you mm. just on a human level because, look, mate, I'm getting a haircut <laughs> or whatever it is and they've followed you into your into your space and into your life and keep talking at you. Yep, yep. But, you know, if we can be as good faith as possible, I think the world can only be a better place. Mm. I mean, I think that's that tends to be the... The moral of most of my shows I'm sort of figuring out my current show at the moment and I think most of my shows have the phrase treat people like people mm. <laughs> uh, somewhere in yep. them yep and like and just just my own sort of looking at where I've come from over the last you know two decades or so like I was one of those people that you know was sure that I had um, and it worked out even back then. I mean, this is beyond, you know, the experience that I'd had then, you know. So I was, I was very sure. But What were, you, what were your certainties back then? Oh, just, yeah. there were certainties based on, I think, where I'd, where I'd grown up that, you know, that this is how, you know, education should be and, you know, um, this should be how, um, you know, uh, religion should be and things like that. Um, How did you think religion should be? Oh, very conservative. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You're religious. Um, well, I grew up. I grew up as a as in a Christian household. Um, but somewhere along the, la- the way, we fell off the wagon. You know. 
Um, and so I still carried certain um, Christian perspectives forward. But then I got to a point, you know, where they just, they, I just found them alienating, you know. Give me a, give me a concrete example. Um, You're speaking in generalities. I am, And I feel I? like that's you shielding something real interesting. Okay. Um, <laughs> it might not be. All right. Well, I guess I used to be somebody that you could probably call homophobic. Fair enough. You know. And that was that it is, was it is if you're talking about conservative Christian South Australian country boy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well Victorian country boy. Victorian <laughs> yeah. country boy, you, that rings um, true. Yeah. And that, you know, that I just I just felt that everything around that issue mm. was like wrong, you mm-hmm. know. Um and and I, I looking. I can't believe Did that. Did it I feel like an intellectual certainty or a, like a, a visceral reaction, like a physical discomfort? Probably both. Yeah. I think. Um, I wouldn't sort of say intellectually because I just didn't know what the hell I was thinking. You know. Mm. Um, there's nothing intellectual about that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, just the, the evolution of that idea. Um, uh, and you know, coming to the point where I was just like, yeah, "How could you think that?" You know, what was the process for you of coming to the point where something that you'd been certain about seemed unthinkable? Like, how could you have even thought that? How did? Was it a slow process or a quick process? Was it, was it a matter a, of meeting people? It, it was. Yeah, it was. It was a slow process. It was definitely a matter of meeting people. It was definitely a matter of working alongside people. Um, you know. Um, and just uh, listening to them um, on a human level, talking about their experience of the world and just just day to day, you know, and just thinking, hang on, w- what I've been brought up to believe over here mm. is just is just totally wrong. Yeah, it doesn't know? jibe with the reality. Yeah, yeah, of life. yeah. And I don't, I don't blame, you know, I certainly don't blame, say. M- my parents for that way of thinking. Mm. Um, I think that there's just... Well, they didn't have the opportunity to meet the people you met or live the life you did. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that was probably... um, Yeah, I think that was probably, you know, my moving away, moving out from the the little community that I did, um, you know, allowed me to sort of take on that or, you know, take on new perspectives, so, you know. Yeah, um, this is the argument for cities and it's also the argument for people talking in real life, not just on the internet to people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But the internet helps you. Yeah, the internet <laughs> helps me, absolutely. But well, it helps um, me too, but yeah. Um, I have to force myself sometimes to engage with people in the, in the real world. I'm very happy living in books and ideas and floating oh, around in a little bubble and playing with thoughts. Yep. Uh, and it's only when you sort of have to defend them to somebody or explain them and they always seem so sort of perfect and beautifully formed yep. in your head. They're this lovely soap bubble. It's not until you actually engage with someone and then they point out this fucking gaping flaw <laughs> in your idea or you've you've made this perfect joke and you tell it and no one laughs yep. and you go oh this this beautiful idea i had in my head is just a is ju- 
just a dragonfly in the distance. It's not actually a real thing. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing more disappointing or more useful than that moment where yeah. you're like, ah, oh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, and then, you know, that and that's you've got to take a risk when you um, you, you want to get out and talk to people mm. because you, you, well, you do take risks because you 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 take risks because you, you like I said before, I've, I've had this bad case of imposter syndrome mm. where I like I want to meet, I, I want to get out and meet people and talk to them, but I, there's so much I don't know, Alice, you know. Um, but you won't find it out until you talk to those people. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and that, and that's what I've sort of tried to um, keep in the back of my mind, you know. Yeah, it's hard work, man. Yeah. It's yeah. hard work to, to do that. Mm. And also you're an author, so that's a very lonely profession. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, challenging, challenging ideas and challenging... Um, and trying to kind of get feedback on those ideas is important for me as a writer. So, you know, if I'm sitting in my little hovel, you know, not in, in interacting with people, then I can't get to understand people and I can't understand the characters that I'm trying to portray in my work. I so. guess being a nurse also helps with that because illness is no discriminator. Other than sort of lifestyle factors, but you do have people of all different classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, il- illness, serious illness, strips all of the bullshit out of our interactions with one another. Mm. Absolutely, you know. Um, and I think that's probably one of the things that I still get a kick out of as a nurse is that it doesn't matter where you come from, but when you're in that moment of com- com- serious illness, um, like. Everything drops away, you know, and and the the relationship that you have with a patient, or the potential relationship you can have with a patient as a nurse, just um, it just becomes pure, you know, absolutely pure. So yeah, it's just about human kindness. Yeah, yeah. And human need, mm. which I think is a nice thing. I think that's a really valuable thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and I've had some of the. I've had some really wonderful conversations with patients who, and we've, di- I've di- you know, we've discovered that we're both sort of um, <clears throat> thinking about the world and our place in it, um, particularly through the context of illness, you know. Um, and so these, this, this, the opportunity to sort of throw ideas around, you know, Especially at two in the morning. That's the best time to throw ideas around. It is the best time to yeah, throw yeah. an idea around is two so. o'clock in the morning. And speaking of your own illness, oh, there's a dog downstairs. Yeah. Um, speaking of illness at two o'clock in the morning, how is your voice? Well, I have one. Yeah, I've noticed. <laughs> it's quiet, though. Um, it's going okay, uh, but I'm currently having a... Um, a series of regular injections of Botox into my throat. Ooh, glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> it's not fucking glamorous. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I actually just had one last week and I'm still uh, I'm still getting around to um, the point where it's going to be fully effective. So, so I have a muscle in the base of my throat which w- was kind of 
it was all involved in all the surgery that I had before, but um, it was kind of left to its own devices. And we discovered that after things had settled down that this muscle was going into spasm all the time. Mm. And basically it was trying to kill me, you know, um, through yeah, eating food and then bring it back up for whatever reason, you know, um, and not allowing me to um, have much more than a, a quiet voice, you mm. know. So what we've started doing is having these uh, injections of um, botulinum toxin into this muscle mm-hmm. and basically uh, stopping it cold. So I had that last week, but it takes 10 days for it to kick in. So, you know, um, so in that, in that period of time, I've had to kind of, um, you know, it's the ticking time bomb thing. Like, um, can I get my throat through these 10 days and not kill myself because yeah. it's trying to, you know, choke me or whatever. Um, and then I get into this sort of three months of relative bliss where I'm confident that the muscle's not going to act up, Yeah. Um, that I can eat and then I could uh, work on my speech therapy that will allow me to speak, you know. Um, yeah, but then we have to repeat the process, so yeah. Sounds stressful. It is, um, and some days I handle the stress well, and then other days I don't handle it very well at all. What does not handling it well look like? Um, just being fearful of you know eating and drinking. I'm enjoying tea or something like that. So you know, um, and being fearful of getting into conversations because I'm only good for you know maybe an hour or two a day. Yeah. After which time my voice just completely craps out. So, you know. So you've got to use your words wisely yeah, and well. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, and so I need to, yeah, so I value my words when I speak them, I it's think. I don't value them so much on Twitter, but then, you know, that's another story entirely. So. typing ability. Yeah, yeah. And this whole enterprise of keeping your body from killing itself. Mm. I assume that you have healthcare cover here in Australia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we're... What would have happened if you were in the US or somewhere that didn't? Uh, I'd probably be... I wouldn't have a house. Definitely wouldn't have a house. I'd probably have to have mortgaged the house to... Um, just to afford the injections that I have to have. But also the surgery that I've had, you know, over the last 18 months to two years, you know. Like, um, and it's kind of interesting because just by the very nature of where I work, um, I uh, have access to the very surgeons and people that I need to see Mm. um, who are very kind to me, you know. Because they know you as a person. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I don't see a bill. Uh. (laughs) Ah. So um, that's been that's been a good thing, um, but yeah, look, America, I'd, I'd probably be dead by now. Um, England, I'd have the NHS, um, and things would happen probably a lot slower than what they've happened for me. But here in Australia, because I've got my private health insurance um, that I pay you know dutifully into for me and my for my family as well. Um, 
where it's it, it, the stress of thinking about being able to do this isn't a big deal. Yeah. Which is incredible. Yeah. It's an incredible, yeah, again, just a privilege. And I've been in and out of both the public and private healthcare system in Australia with mum, mm. sort of depending on how urgent the matter was. We'd either go to the private hospital or the public hospital. Yeah, sure. And both standards of care were incredibly high mm. in both situations. They dealt with us yep. incredibly well Yeah. Mm. over years, like years and years and years and years and years. Yeah, yeah. And we own, you know, of course, any organisation you have difficulties and troubles. There are oh, a few, few rough patches. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the most part, just reasonable human beings mm. doing their absolute best. Yeah, yeah. Which is incredible. And I mean, I, you know, look, I won't, I won't say my employer. I mean, pe- people that listen to this who know me will know who I'm talking about. But um, my my employer, uh, I feel really privileged to work for who I do. Yeah. In today, because um, they they have really been, you know, outstanding in their support of me through all of this. You know. Um, yeah, and, and weirdly, not all healthcare provider employers are great about their employees' health. No. Which no. you sort of think is a bit. I mean, not that good for business, if nothing else. Like you don't want a hairdresser with a bad haircut. <laughs> I mean, that's a joke. All hairdressers have bad haircuts. That's also a mean joke and not true. Uh, where can people find you online, Dean? Um, I will so uh, leave you some words to say for the rest of the day. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, my website is uh, deanfromaustralia.com. And, um, yeah, please visit it because I've got a book coming out later this year and I want people to, to buy it. <laughs> yes. Well, do that. Visit that website, deanfromaustralia.com, and uh, hit him up on Twitter. Yeah. If you have something interesting to say. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll try and be um, cordial. And if you meet him in the street, you do most of the talking. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for having tea with me.
On Monday morning she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin, turns around for to view her frames, crying down your doffers, cry up your hands, lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up doffers, he will roar. Well, up we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifles all, lally rifles day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifles all, lally rifles day.